And now we've got Mr. Jim's up. Jim, how you Hello. Doing? You, oh. like, literally came to this country uh, an hour ago? Mere moments ago. Yeah. Yeah. Sped on a cab all your way here to Marvel headquarters. Thanks I for did. joining us. I had to. Yeah. Well, it, you you were like, hey, we're going to have a signing and, like, a, a good time. You want to come hang out? I was like, why aren't you coming by the office That's to right. see us and be on the show? That's uh, honestly more important to me than anything else. Good. Yeah. As, as well it should be. Of course. Yeah. So I was thinking about this since we, we were talking the other day. How did we even start knowing each other? Because it's been years before you right. were really doing a lot of some regular work for us. Was I still at Udon at that point? That's what it probably was. Mm-hmm. What were you doing at Udon? At so I started, at, well, my career at Udon is very strange. Like nine years. I started at Udon as a colorist and then eventually an illustrator and then eventually a project manager and an editor. So just sort of moved through all these, just clawing my way through the company piece by piece until I made myself irreplaceable so they couldn't get rid of me. Just sort of clinging to the to the side of it like a barnacle. I'm, fa- I'm familiar with that role <laughs> and with that trajectory. It's good, you yeah. know, but it, what, what was amazing about it was, is first of all, I got to see so much of kind of underneath the hood of what happens in publishing. Mm. So in terms of editorial and pre-press and conventions and event planning and just all that stuff that honestly has served me really well. I know that doesn't sound very sexy or whatever when people talk about the business side of whatever, but really in a creative career, it can be super valuable to have those experiences and to know what's happening in other parts of a company so you can do your job better. Actually, though, that is so smart and so important to think about for anyone who wants to get into the industry and comics in any way is like, yeah, great. You want to, you're a fan, you're excited. But to understand that this is a business and there are so many different aspects to it and how to to divorce yourself from your fanness and understand how to get stuff done properly. Right. And also, you know, sort of breaking that assumption that if you're not entering on a creative front that you're not ever going to, you know what I mean? Like, it's totally a good idea to come in, whether it's as an intern or to, you know, help out in an office or to work on a more kind of administrative level, because those are the ways that you get to know how a company functions. Those are the ways that you build up trust with the people that make those decisions, the hiring and all that kind of stuff. There are a ton of uh, Marvel freelancers, whether people like Dan Slott, uh, Donnie Cates, Donnie Cates, um, uh, wasn't Peter David like a sales guy way back think so. in the day? I uh, think yeah, um, Fabian Nicieza, yeah. he worked in, in the office. Yeah, and you learn how all this stuff functions. Like you get to see kind of the broader community. And, and I think that that stuff's really valuable as well. When you open yourself up to those kinds of experiences and you say, okay, this is the entire pipeline. Where do I fit into it? And what do other people do? You know, one of the most valuable things that I can do as a freelancer is to know what your job is and make your job easier. So you want to keep working with me. Yes. Yeah. And you're doing that because you know how to talk on the a microphone. That's and you're right. Like making this an easy experience. You're so good. Oh, thanks. That's yeah. very kind of you. Oh, uh, very cool. So, all right. You made yourself indispensable to Udon, but then at what point did you like, I need to break out and do my own thing? Well, my background is in art and animation. Mm-hmm. So I was actually uh, working in classical animation. I did background art for a while. On I what? did some storyboarding and stuff like that. It's all in like little Canadian productions. Oh, little Canadian productions. <laughs> Just a little quaint kind of smile as I said that. Uh, and then, um, you know, 
but my love of this stuff has always been storytelling, mm -hmm. whether that's like my love of, of playing Dungeons and Dragons or my love of, you know, reading and, and film and animation and comics. It's all about storytelling. And so I had done so much administrative stuff and I had worked on project managing for so many other people's properties and they taught me a ton. But like underneath that, there was this like kind of boiling need to want to tell my own stories. And so I started doing that at the same time. I uh, started doing like, a, I did a web comic in 2001 when that was not even really a thing. Um, and I met a bunch of people through that. Uh, even at Udon, I started to try and get more involved in the creative aspect of it or the writing aspect of it. And uh, through, you know, good fortune and, and just sheer tenacity, you know, it slowly got more and more chances to do writing. Um, what was your first writing gig? Like that I got paid for? Or just, <laughs> Ooh. Ah, uh, no, no. Uh, that, that always throws me for a loop because yeah. you're like thinking about that, you know, some people just will just write and not get paid for it. Yeah. Because yeah. I, you know, I, people are so desperate for early, like credits at the earliest parts of their career. They'll yeah. throw themselves at any opportunity. Uh, yeah. And, and I understand it, but at the same time, like, no. Yeah, I mean, no, I know. And, it, and, it's, and it's tough because I think as long as, you know, if you're doing your own work, if you're creating your own thing, make those sacrifices every time. Like if I have an ownership stake, if you want to get all business-like, and I'm making stuff uh, for myself that I control, then yeah, you're going to spend more time. If you actually calculated out the money earned versus time spent, <laughs> it would depress you, but it's not oh, about yeah. that. It's really about making your mark and telling the stories you want to tell and controlling them, you know. But once you start doing commercial work for other people, once you start writing professionally, if you want to call it that, you know, um, then that that has a value. Mm -hmm. And that value, you know, deserves to be compensated and all that kind of stuff. Totally. This so, is totally not the conversation I thought we were going to have this morning. Right? I'm going to throw you I'm going to throw people for a loop. <laughs> but then I think the first, like, professional writing thing, I did this um, Udon uh, for the people who don't know, is a studio, an art studio, and they're also a publisher now, but at the time they were exclusively a studio doing what's called creative services, which is like artwork for clients, um, uh, design work, uh, sometimes graphic design, things like that. And they did a lot of work for Marvel in their early days. Very obviously. manga and anime inspired yeah, work. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the, the gang were heavily inspired by, you know, uh, Capcom video game artwork and anime uh, as a whole. And that really lent itself well to those early books they did, like Deadpool, Agent X, uh, Sentinel, and things like that. That that was a long time ago. Oh gosh, yeah, so it's crazy. Ago. But uh, equally, uh, the studio was doing a lot of work for other people, and they would do promotional artwork. Um, and so what happened was we had a client come in, and they wanted to do a promotional comic for the um, the remake of Clash of the Titans. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so sure. they were like, well, you guys are a one-stop shop. That's what we heard. You do everything. You guys put together these promotional materials and the art and the writing and the lettering. And we were like, yes, <laughs> yes, we do. And so um, I wrote the script for this little, you know, they gave me the movie stuff and I adapted a sort of a little prequel kind of a story for them uh, and, and wrote the script and kept, you know, sort of sweating like, they're going to know. They're going to instantly look at it and they're going to know that this guy's never done this before. But, that you know, it wasn't like that. It was really straightforward kind of story and it just took some kind of cool Greek myth stuff and, and we made this great little promo comic and it worked out quite well. Yeah. Even just that little thing kind of got me like, oh, yeah, I can I can write these stories. I can do this stuff. And over the course of the next uh, couple of years, I would jump in on little writing projects. I would do I did a miniseries for Street Fighter uh, with the Udon gang. Um, I did another uh, miniseries for 
an RPG series comic called Exalted. Um, wow, this is really, I, it's like I'm rolling it back in my mind trying to remember all these little things. Lots of little promotional stuff, advertising stuff. Even some of the first Marvel gigs I did for Bill Roseman, they were very much in that creative services sort of model. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I these advertising comics that you'll see. I know it doesn't sound, again, very sexy, but it's like, it's a really good way to get get your feet wet and understand how this yeah. stuff works. Yeah, our custom group, which is, you know, that that's the yeah. team that puts this together. They do so many things that, you know, a fan going to the comic book shop don't see normally. Sure. You know, we have books in military bases. Mm-hmm. You know, we have books for uh, video games that we don't own that, you know, like, hey, similar to what you were talking about with right. Udon, they'll come to us. We'll put together a project, you know, an M&M's comic or yeah. who who knows? A million and and I know, books. again, you're looking at it and you go, well, that's not the real stuff. You go, actually, it, it, first of all. It pays. And second of all, it's a really good way to get your foot in the door and to prove what you can do. You know, um, Dan Slott jokes the first time he ever wrote Spider-Man was in a guest spot in a Ren and Stimpy comic that Marvel did. You know what I mean? Like you're learning how to put the voices to the characters. You're learning pacing. Uh, I did a a stint on the Ultimate Spider-Man comic, but it's with the cartoon. So it was tied into the Web Warriors Mm -hmm. cartoon series. And so um, there's a company in Europe and the UK, and they publish this thing called Spider-Man Magazine, and it comes out every month, and it's got like um, mazes and games for kids, and it's usually got a 10-page comic story in there. And I wrote 20 issues of Spider-Man, you know, and I got to use any character that showed up in the cartoon. And I mean, that show ran the gamut. So I literally had, you know, Avengers guest starring. I had an issue with Blade in it. I had an issue with Werewolf by Night. I had uh, like. How fun is that? Like it was a it was a a phenomenal experience. And one of the things that the the format of it was these 10 page stories with like a one page sort of stinger. So sort of 11 pages, but you only have 10 pages of plot. And you have to do a complete Spider-Man story. You have to introduce a threat. You have to make it interesting, make it visual, and then finish it up in 10 pages. You know, basically half the size of a normal monthly Marvel comic. And being able to do that, like I learned every panel is precious. Like I need to make every page pay off, every little plot work. They were these tight little stories that had to, there was no fat on them whatsoever. And it was a really good exercise. Like I got to um, put all these different characters into the comic. You know, I got to write Thor and I got to write Captain America and, uh, you know, all these different characters with Spidey. Uh, but at the same time, I also learned how to just fine tune those little plot elements and pack in a story as tightly as I could. And Bill is a phenomenal editor to work with. We did the Figment series for the Disney Kingdoms line and stuff like that. And he was always, you know, really enthusiastic and really uh, sharp in his feedback and just got me to a point where I was really fine-tuning stuff. And when he uh, left, he got a promotion, and he now heads up Marvel Games. Uh, he gave me the best gift of all, and he basically told other editors in the, you know, at Marvel, hey, this guy's delivering the goods. Uh, give him a shot. And uh, Tom Brevoort, uh, you know, kind of brought me in under his wing, and I've been doing Avenger stuff ever since. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, I love what you talk about when you were doing the 10-page comic stuff, mm-hmm. because it, I, I always think about when I started, I was at Wizard and I worked on the price guide and right. we had these little sidebars and we're in print. So there is a very finite amount of space we have right. and learning how to write. You have 50 words mm-hmm. to get a point across about why a comic book is important, fun, valuable and necessary or whatever the case may be. Right. And doing that month in, month out. 
hammered home the importance of words and the power That's of ad of, copy right there. Yeah. You know, and, and then developing that through social media has been like Twitter now gives you sure. a, a billion characters to do things. But when it started, you had this being able to tell a story in whatever format it yep. is with limitations yeah helps yeah. you when you don't have those same limitations Absolutely. so much people ask me about whether i prefer creator owned comics or commercial work and i honestly like i'm not just saying that uh i like both because they flex different creative muscles so when i'm working on my own creator owned stuff it's great because kind of the sky's the limit you can just sort of open up the flukes and go okay we're gonna do all the things but it can it can be really powerful to for someone to give you a stringent format to say you have to hit the mark here and you're going to have to create stories in a way that you haven't done so before or you're going to have to incorporate Marvel continuity or you're going to have to bring all these pieces into play and make it as cohesive without losing your own voice. Mm -hmm. That's a really cool challenge. And then when you're able to pull that off, if you can, you know, just uh, like I said, thread the needle on it, I feel like it's it, it, it pushes you as an artist and it makes you think more carefully about the stories that you tell. And so I love doing both. Like I want to hold on to both, you know, one in each hand and just keep this this crazy uh, roller coaster ride going because it's been so much fun to be able to do, you know, titles like Thunderbolts and uh, The Avengers while also doing my own thing at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Tom Brevoort opens yeah. up his uh, trench coat and <laughs> says, welcomes you awkward. in with a warm, <laughs> no, with a warm hug. Come on. <laughs> Evil producer Brandon is shaking his head. No, guys, come on. This is innocent. Right. Uh, he, he welcomes you in, gives you the hug. And so what is that like? Can I tell you, actually, I was really crazy intimidated because uh, Tom has, he's, as far as I know, he's the longest running editor now at Marvel Yep. by, by a long shot, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think... I don't know if he's 30 years or 26 or yeah, 28 or somewhere like in there. Uh, but he was editing books when I was reading and collecting the comics. And so that, you know, his reputation precedes him. Like he's got such a deep well of knowledge of Marvel history and continuity and has been the, you know, the gatekeeper of a lot of this stuff. And so uh, working underneath him, I was super intimidated at first. And of course, you never want to let that show. You just act like, oh, yeah. Business as usual, but I was sweating it at first. I, I wanted to, uh, you know, hit the mark, and I wanted to really impress. And so we started developing the the Thunderbolts series, the relaunch of that with um, the Winter Soldier as the leader of the Thunderbolts, and it was a ton of fun. It was a really good showcase for me because I got to write these kind of morally ambiguous characters who are fast-talking troublemakers, which is just totally in my wheelhouse and I absolutely love. And we got to kind of run wild with that for a year. And it was just really good fun. And that all led into Secret Empire. And, you know, that was kind of the plan is is we were bridging um, the book. Uh, we were bridging kind of Bucky's story and the Thunderbolts and the Masters of Evil into Secret Empire. With Thunderbolts, I mean, their hearts were ripped out. Yeah. There's crazy stuff. You get to write a, a child that is actually essentially a godlike, you know, weird not being. Yeah, it was yeah, a like, ton of fun. Kobik was so fascinating, yeah. to, to, I'm sure, to get to play around with. She was with. like the monkey's, the cosmic monkey's paw. Come like, to, she, like she could give you anything you wanted, but it would never come out the way you want it you know yeah. it's fascinating yeah and then obviously bucky's got to yeah. be a really like i could tell reading the book that you were having fun Absolutely. with him and the foils of all the the jerks around him yeah yeah what was what was great about uh what is great about the winter soldier is you know he is an incredibly capable person but beneath that he is also 
you know, he's vulnerable in his own ways. He's been mistreated. He wants to see goodness in himself and in others because he has gone through so much. And so just as much as he was trying to redeem the Thunderbolts and try and carry them in a more heroic direction, they're kind of pulling him back into the darkness as well. Like they're bringing out some of his worst qualities. And, you know, the push and pull of that, it's a ton of fun. Like I love writing heroic characters and I love writing aspirational stuff, but the the moral ambiguity and the tug of war, that stuff is tons of fun because you can really give people unexpected swerves. A character like Moonstone, who is just the most selfish and uh, self-serving kind of person, if you can kind of crack the shell on that and show that she's got vulnerability, but she's still doing terrible things, like that's just so many fun pieces to play with. For sure. Yeah. So Thunderbolts goes, Secret Empire happens. What's your next move? So then I did Uncanny Avengers. So uh, Tom and Alana sat me down and asked me uh, if I would, uh, Jerry Duggan was going to be moving on to Guardians of the Galaxy. And they wanted um, to sort of wrap up Uncanny Avengers. And they wanted to know if I could sort of take it to the to sunset the book, uh, which was intimidating because with Thunderbolts, we got to launch it and finish it, you know, in, in from 12 issues. I got to do the whole kind of thing. And here I was taking, you know, Rick Remender and Jerry Duggan's run and trying to sort of coda, put a coda on it and finish it in a way that felt like it was fitting while still putting little bits of myself into it or my own preferences. Yeah. But it was great. It was a really cool challenge and I had a ton of fun. And Uncanny Avengers is such a, a quirky book because I, the way I describe it is like the crossroads of the Marvel Universe because you've got mutants and Avengers and you've got an inhuman character and you've got the magic stuff with, uh, you know, Dr. Voodoo and all these pieces kind of coming together and colliding into to really reflect, I think, the breadth and depth of the Marvel Universe. And so... You've got really deep legacy characters like the Wasp is on the team and Scarlet Witch I brought on board and Quicksilver. But you also have brand new characters like Synapse. And so it was just fun to be able to play with such a broad group of characters and an eclectic group of characters and try and give them a purpose. You know, Rogue was very much at the center of that. I loved uh... Ah. Rogue is one of my favorites yeah. to begin with. And yeah. I, like I thought she, you were able to give her a great place to shine. You made oh, her thank like, you. I loved rogue leader rogue there and then seeing where she you saying know, rogue leader sounds like uh, <laughs> star wars stuff here yeah, yeah. oh my god can somebody draw <laughs> rogue wearing like some star wars clothing because i'd be really that'd be that. pretty great yeah. and now rogue's got a uh an important role to play in you know in no surrender which yeah. is also super exciting totally with thunderbolts the penciler was john mallon to begin with but sean is actually came on right. a little bit later, right? Yeah. And then Sean joined you on Uncanny Avengers. Yeah, yeah. I just Sean, sort of carried him with me now. Would, He's so Sean good. has got like Sean is one of those artists you watch has gotten oh. so much better. Consistent like he was it was good to start. Yeah. And like by the end of Uncanny, I was like, holy crap, he is so freaking good. Yeah. I, yeah. I and consistent. Consistent. He's unbelievably good. Sean's been so wonderful to work with. We worked on a another series at a different publisher together and I could really tell he had the chops. And so uh, I was so happy that he got his chance at Marvel and we got to work together. And we'll jump on Skype every so often. He's in uh, South Africa. And so totally different time zone stuff, but we'll jump on and, and just sort of kibitz and chat. And he's such a such a good dude. And he's working so hard on the book. And it, it, you know, um, 
he puts in the time, like some of the pages, I, when you write this stuff, you think in your mind, oh yeah, okay, these elements are gonna be in there. And then when you see what the artist puts together and you realize, oh, I made them do that. that I'm a bad person. <laughs> like that, the amount of work that they just, the, um, you know, the new Avengers stuff in particular that we're doing, not new Avengers like the series, but Avengers No Surrender, because we're playing with 25 different heroes and we have these insane collisions of heroes and villains, you know, you write stuff like, oh, yeah, there's going to be 16 characters smashing into each other on this double page spread. Have fun. You're like, it's <laughs> not fun. What are you talking about? Yeah. I wrote for 20 minutes and this person's going to spend a week on that page. Yeah, like, that's ridiculous. But nah. they d- deliver in the goods. Yeah. Like, man, the book looks so phenomenal. Yeah. And speaking of delivering the goods, before we were recording, we were just heaping praise upon Pepe Larraz. Oh, my gosh. And David Curiel. I just- Sweet. Sweet Pepe. <laughs> sweet, sweet Pepe. So uh, Pepe, this is going to sound super awkward. Like if, you, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, man, I am the biggest fan. I was such a big fan um, when I was going to be taken over on Kenny Avengers. Pepe was drawing Uncanny for Jerry. Yep. And he, the, those last few issues that he drew with the Red Skull stuff all kind of uh, paying off, I was so blown away by them. And, and so literally the first thing I said when Tom offered me on Kenny Avengers, I go, Pepe's drawing it, right? They were like, oh, no, Pepe's going to be moving on to something else. I didn't know it was going to be the Avengers Weekly yeah. thing. So I was less like, oh, like a single tear rolls down my <laughs> cheek because I was like, oh, I got to work with that guy someday. He's so phenomenal. And then literally like uh, two months later, they're like, oh, do you want to work on this weekly thing uh, with Pepe Larraz? I was like, oh, duh. The greatest. Uh, yeah, he's so phenomenal. His storytelling sensibility is top notch. And so, he just ekes out so much action and drama. It's facial killer. express, you like telling a story without word. Like there's yeah. so many things that an artist brings to the page, which is why the collaboration between you, the writer, the artist, the inker, the letterer, it is really important how all the pieces of Absolutely. the comic come together. The, the editors as well. Alana, Everybody's Tom. bringing bringing pieces into this. And I think people don't, appreciate that how much work goes underneath the hood of these things the letterer in particular they're the the last person in the pipeline and readability is so important if you're not if you don't have good lettering then the book falls apart and equally if you have pages that are maybe not as clear as you'd hope the letterer can bring clarity they can bring uh the story back around they can make it really hold the whole thing together or blow it apart totally and those are the pieces that i feel like at first, people just look and they go, oh, writer, artist. And then, and then they always think line artist. And they don't think color artist, which is insane to me. Because yeah. someone like David Curiel on Pepe's uh, you know, line art is bringing out so much mood, so much depth, so much beauty in that work. And coloring has become so much more complicated and is taken for granted, I feel like, by the industry at large. You know, Someone like Tamara Bonvillain, who's... Uh, coloring Sean on Uncanny Avengers, the work is stunning and it changes the look of the page. It changes the atmosphere of the story and it enhances the stuff that I hope for when I'm writing that dialogue or putting together those kind of whatever you want to call them, stage directions or what may have you. Yeah, Yeah. there's the two-page spread early in 675, Mm -hmm. which came out last week, which has... uh, Falcon in New York City and you have the, the sun and the Kirby Crackle and Obviously, something is going wrong yes. in the world. The world is under a cataclysmic change. Yeah. There's so many ways that that could have been colored and that could have completely changed the tenor and the tone of that 
spread and what you have there works so perfectly and so much of that is the collaboration between David and Pepe. Yeah, uh, and have it just that they understand how to bring out the most a good color artist isn't trying to overwhelm the line art. They're trying to always there's a term we used in animation on the pipeline we call plussing. So your job was to always add, never to take away. So your job was to make something better, make something clearer, communicate the idea. You know, So a, a good colorist is always plussing. They're always adding to the storytelling. They're always bringing more to the page. It, you know, It's not about rendering either. Sometimes people will get obsessed. I see people online working on digital painting or something, and they'll render every follicle. You know, They'll <laughs> render every blade of grass every little bit of whatever moisture in the air or how many little particles can we use and detail is not the same uh, is not always effective like there are times to go crazy with detail and there are places and ways to do it you know we were you and i before the podcast were talking about mark brooks and the effectiveness of his covers and the way that he can pick and choose his battles so it's about this is where your eyes should be looking this is about a nice iconic pose or a really strong montage of characters and not just rendering things for the sake of rendering them but knowing where to plus the material. Totally. I yeah. love that, the plussing. That makes yeah. so much sense. So Pepe was working on this, and you right. brought, got brought into the project after he well, was he on was board committed and was rolling. to it. I mean, he hadn't started drawing anything. Mm-hmm. No Surrender is honestly the most, the biggest lead time I've ever had on a project. And according to Tom, one of the biggest lead times they've ever given to any project he's been involved in in all of his years here at Marvel. We started working on it. The first email, I checked back onto my messages because we were talking all about this stuff. Uh, my first message was December 19th, 2016. <laughs> that was when the first message was, hey, we're thinking about doing a weekly Avengers event. Um, are you interested in being involved? And of course, the instant answer is always, you just want to do full caps screaming, yes, but instead you're very professionally, oh, sounds great. Let's talk about it because you want to try and sound like a pro, whereas inside your heart is exploding, right? Um And then what I didn't know is we were going to start working on it. We did our first story summit February 2nd of 2017, and our first script was due in early March. And then every two weeks we had to have another script done in order to build enough of a buffer for three different art teams to be working away on the book so it would look consistent. And Tom and Alana had made this incredible schedule. And you looked at it and you go, oh, for the next, you know, 36 weeks, we're going to be doing this. And it seemed so logical. And then you just dig in, you know, and try and make this unwieldy, insane, cosmic, crazy, big budget story all come together. And we're like, we have to keep heart at the center of this thing. We have to make people care about these characters. And so we have to sort of pick our battles. Who are the characters we're going to focus most on? What is what do they need? What do they want? And and what is the end result of all this crazy cosmic stuff? That it's not just big budget, but it, there's a heart and pump, you know, pumping blood in the middle of it. And so um, we started cranking away on it. And then Pepe came on. I think we had six issues in the can, so he was wrapping up his other commitments, and he started designing the new villains that we had put together, um, the new Lethal Legion. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get to them. Oh, I, yeah. We're, running, we're getting a little uh, short on time here because you've got a, a fancy lunch to go to Ooh. and a big signing and all this other fun <laughs> stuff in New York. But before we finish, yeah. we got to talk about the Lethal Legion yes. in the back matter of 676, which is out this week. We talked about it on the show and on the pull list. But you guys have introduced the new Lethal right. Legion. I was actually thrilled. I wrote those pages. Uh, and so the art notes that are in the back of 676, those are my art notes to Pepe. Uh, this is 
the new character cast. Here's what we're doing. And those all came from just ridiculous brainstorming that we put together. Um, probably my favorite is uh, is Menticle. <laughs> Menti- I think in my, I, I feel like in my notes, I wrote uh, Menticle is the character find of Yeah, I really hope that uh, 676 becomes, it just skyrockets on eBay because everyone's like, must have Menticle, first appearance <laughs> of Menticle. Uh, so there were two things in, um, in No Surrender. One of them hasn't happened yet, but the Menticle thing was a joke that became not a joke. Like we wanted to play, the way I described it to someone is, uh, No Surrender is like a really classic heroes versus villains story. And trying to capture some of that old school Marvel magic, but use new school kind of storytelling sensibilities. But every so often, like this is gonna sound weird, but because we have so much emotion wrapped up in a name like Spider-Man, when we say it, we summon that vision, that icon of that character. But if you just said the the words without any context, Spider-Man, like it is foolish in its way, right? Love Spider-Man. So the headline on the on the, yeah. the, the Jim the comic thinks, book dirt sheets. Yeah. yeah, Jim Zub thinks Spider-Man is, is, foolish. is foolish. Quote. But anyways, <laughs> but the name itself is foolish, right? But but the character is something rich and special and wonderful. There's power to it. Because now. it's been imbued with such emotional quality, thanks to Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, all the people that have contributed to the character over the years, right? And so it's not about a name. It's about what you do with them, right? Whether it's Living Lightning or whether it's the Scarlet Witch or whether it's you know any of these characters. And so uh, we were talking in the roundtable we were doing here at the Marvel office like almost a year ago. We were saying how... People seem to want to shy away from names that seem obvious or seem kitschy that way. And, you know, because they don't want it's too corny. We don't do stuff like that anymore. And you're like, no, those names are kind of awesome. Like, I think you can do that as long as you do it with heart and you make something fun with it. And so we were joking around about, well, we don't want to call these villains like, you know, bad guy, McBad guy or whatever. Like, how, what do you call them? And so at one point I said, I, I want characters that are not always humanoid. Like, I don't, they don't need to have two legs and two arms. Like something with tentacles or whatever, you know. And uh, Al was just sort of like nodding. He goes, yeah, weird alien shapes and all this sort of thing. And I said, you know, and they don't have to, it doesn't always have to be a physical fight. They don't have to punch each other, like psychic powers or whatever, you know. And then I think Al was the one who actually said like, you know, it's a mental tentacle. And we were like, ha, 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 mental tentacle. And then he goes, a menticle. And we just <laughs> That's went, a good Al Ewing right? impression. <laughs> no, he's got that that, that Yeah, bass. that low. Br- and so we all just started laughing. And I don't, someone wrote it down, said menticle, placeholder. That's not the name of this character because it's too foolish, right? And then over the time, you know, we were just talking about story stuff. And then we go, and then the menticle does this. And then the menticle does that. And we're just, every time it comes up, we laugh. But we're kind of like drilling it into our minds. And then there was just no other name you could use. At that point, like, Menticle was it. Yeah. It was, it was done. And it feels... The cel- die was cast. <laughs> it feels celebratory of that Stanley Jack Kirby yeah. flavor. And if, yeah. I, like, I didn't balk when I saw Menticle. Yeah. I was like, okay, great. You this, can call this feels Marvel the Silver Surfer. <laughs> yeah. Because he's silver and he's on a surfboard. Yeah. It's totally awesome. It's actually the greatest thing, right? Yeah. Like, 
don't you don't have to shy away from that stuff. We're not too cool for it, you know? And so I like I would love for these characters to stick around. I would love for these characters to to we put a, you know, milestone in the ground, we make this cool new villain team or they go off and they do their own thing. Uh, one of the other characters, so Drawl, uh, we call her the gladiator beyond the stars. And she's like this monster uh, gladiatorial warrior kind of thing. And um, what you'll notice is in her first appearances, she just starts like screaming all these different things. And in the translation, there's a little caption that says, uh, I think it says, translated from the war chants of the Endrionic Empire. Yeah. And someone goes, what's the Endrionic Empire? And I said, oh, I don't know, but... We'll get to it at some point. And they were just like, what? I said, well, I would love to make a new alien race for the Marvel Universe called the Endrion, and this will be the first appearance of it. And Tom goes, so you're just like laying your bed for yourself? I'm like, yeah, yeah, let me keep writing cool cosmic crazy stuff. I like that. that that's the Dan Slott method, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dan will like the, oh, remember this war that I seeded in She-Hulk <laughs> nine years ago? I guess we should do something So much it. you paid off. Uh, I'll give you guys a bit of a, uh, it's not really a spoiler, but at the end of uh, No Surrender in our 16th uh, issue, which will be 690 coming out in April. Oh my God. We've already written it, of course. It's all done. And in that epilogue issue, uh, we just, I think all of us just peppered in cool stuff that we hope we can pay off in other books at some future point. Like, the, you know, whoever's writing Avengers down the line, I guess they could pick up those threads. But man, I kind of hope they don't because then we can just sort of go back and tie them all together and make them, uh, you know, future fun stories. For sure. Before we wrap, we also have to talk about the brand new hero who's not a new hero right voyager right everyone's favorite obviously voyager, voyager. and i love valerie vector yeah which again very classic <laughs> marvel and her villain was uh, uh victory the electromagnetic yes, man that's right you know i like i love it I, it just and you had what i hope all of our reader listeners and readers do is go back to those old issues yep. and see because i i went through and i was like oh i know that panel i know that yep. panel i was like I don't know that panel. What's amazing is is there's some really iconic ones that people, I think, I don't know if you would expect, but that you see it and you go, oh, yeah, that's real, you know, Avengers lore. That's very classic. But there's a couple that are just off the cuff weird. And you're like, that's cool, too, that this character has been and is woven into sort of the broader Marvel universe. And, of course, I'm getting already tons of questions from people on Twitter uh, asking me up a storm. They're all at Jim's up and me up and, and asking me where this stuff comes from and, you know, Voyager, what's this all about? And and people making so many assumptions about who she is, where she comes from. I kind of love that when someone goes, oh, I know what you're doing. And they just give me their whole theory. And the best part is, is I can't, I mean, it's already been written. It's been written, we finished writing the series in late October, but honestly, the main story was built in February and March of last year. So I'm sure because of the grand brain of the internet, people will figure out certain elements of it or people will stumble across the reality of it, but it's done now. We've done the mystery. We figured out what we wanted to do with it and paid it off. And, you know, that idea of a character who is retroactively involved in the history of the Marvel universe has been done before. And Mark Wade has done that kind of character stuff before in some of his other superhero writing. And what he said to people was, he goes, I wouldn't use the same trick twice. Like there's more to this than just, this ain't just, we're not doing century two. Like I love there's more to it than this, that we've got a fun twist on, on an idea. And a lot of these are about taking classic elements. People go, Oh, well I've seen, 
characters in peril, the world's been stolen or things are bad or, you know, yes. But what we're trying to do is take some of those classic elements that you think you know and give a little bit more of a twist to it. Pay homage to classic ideas of superheroism and heroes versus villains, but not necessarily always give you the result that you think or give you an emotional push that maybe you weren't expecting. And that's really what No Surrender is about. I mean, it's part of Marvel Legacy and Marvel Legacy is about looking at the history of the Marvel Universe and looking at the history of Marvel Comics and celebrating it. And so for us, No Surrender was about what makes the Avengers great, what makes Marvel great, what makes these heroes so iconic and powerful, and what can we do to summon that old Marvel magic without denying that we live in a modern world and that there's modern storytelling sensibilities and art and you know uh, the kinds of things that we do now and try and bridge that gap and make something super special. And if we fail... Man, we put our hearts and souls into it. So it, it's done with the purest of intent, and we're super proud of it. Two issues in, I'm having a blast. Thank it's you. super fun. It means so much to me. I know this sounds so dorky, but it does. It means the world to me. You work on this stuff in in secret for months and months and months and you put yourself into it and you're constantly rolling around your mind like does this work i think it works and you reread it you reread it and you just don't know anymore like you feel like it's not an echo chamber but getting that new set of eyeballs is so precious you know early on when we were developing it having people like you know tom and alana taking a fresh look and going have we addressed this angle are we missing any pieces of it? You know, getting other people to bring their uh, sort of fresh approach to some of the stuff we were doing. Because you can. You get really wound up in so many different elements. And we literally had spreadsheets of 25 characters, 16 issues. What are they doing? Where are they going? What's happening? I love a good spreadsheet full oh of my character gosh. info. It's, it's uh, yeah. Speaking of staying organized, yeah. it was absolutely gong show, you know, trying to keep track of all these characters, what they're doing, and make it feel personal, but also as big as we could possibly make it yeah good sweet it's fantastic thank you we're gonna we're definitely gonna touch base again with you before the end of no surrender awesome uh, as more stuff happens as we crack the internet in half yeah oh no yeah and and definitely more and looking forward to all the other fun stuff and and all the uh, it's gonna be good i'm very excited yeah it's real i'm good. making mine marvel has been uh the best and cool. uh i'm loving it good and we're loving you Thank you, Jim. Oh, you already plugged yourself because you're did. so damn oh, good. What? You know what you're doing. You make my oh, job thanks. easier. Uh, if people want to find out more about my stuff, they can go to my website. So just www.jimzub.com. Uh, I've got a Patreon on there where I actually post uh, scripts after issues are published. So if people are curious about, we were talking about breaking into the industry at the start of this, so we can sort of bring it full circle, and they want to see how stuff is made, how the actual issues are put together, uh, what a script looks like, what a pitch looks like, uh, they can check that stuff out on my site as well. I've got a bunch of free articles about how to pitch your stories, how conventions work, some of the economics of the comic industry. Uh, I love that kind of stuff, and I've got kind of, I, I teach at an art college in Toronto. And so I think that teacher stuff just, I can't stop. So yeah, there's lots of cool stuff on my website. I'm always around on uh, Twitter at jimsub.com. So uh, tell me your theories on Voyager and uh, join the Menticle fan club. Yeah, Menticles are us. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs>